There's been a lot of talk in the news recently about problems with space junk. But what is it and how much is actually up there? Well, to find out the answer to those questions, we're talking to Dr. Alice Gorman, a space archaeologist, and our first interview with a guest in Australia. As always, please do get involved with us on our social networks. We're at Space and Things One on Twitter and at Space and Things Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. And we love hearing from you. Yeah, and don't forget to hit that share button if you enjoy what you hear. But right now, please enjoy episode 66 of the Space and Things Podcast. Things with Dave Giles and Emily Carney. I'm Emily Carney. And I'm Dave Giles, and welcome to episode 66. How are you doing, Emily? How was your Thanksgiving? It was great. Very relaxing, and now I'm back at work, so at least until uh, the Christmas holiday season. Excellent, excellent. It's uh, we'll, we'll get straight in today. I, li- I like this format of just getting straight in. But this is actually our second interview today. We've uh, we've been very busy at Space and Things HQ preparing things for the next couple of months. Uh, so uh, yes, looking forward to this one today. Absolutely, let's get into it. Space junk. Recently, we reported about the fact that Russia had blown up a satellite, creating a debris cloud, which the International Space Station was close to hitting, with astronauts on board having to take evasive action by retreating to their personal spacecraft. We've also reported a few times about the ISS having to manoeuvre to avoid potential objects. And there have been reports this year of satellites having some near misses with each other as well. So with that in mind, we got in contact with Dr. Space Junk herself, Dr. Alice Gorman, a space archaeologist, to come and join us to find out what exactly we have up there. This time last year, Dr. Gorman released a book called Dr. Space Junk vs. the Universe, and she is considered a leader in the field of space archaeology with work being featured in National Geographic, The New Yorker, and The Atlantic. She is also a senior member of the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics and a senior lecturer at Flinders University in Adelaide. And in a first for us, this interview is happening across days. With Dr. Gorman being in Australia at 9.30am on a Wednesday morning, while Emily is early Tuesday evening and I'm late Tuesday night. All aided by satellites in orbit. Welcome, Dr. Gorman. Thank you so much for joining us. So, to begin with, how did you end up becoming a space archaeologist? And are there many of you? Well, it's true. There are not that many space archaeologists. And I think each of us has had a a very sort of distinct path in coming to this field. So, my story is basically when I was a very little kid, I grew up on a farm and we had the most amazing view of the Milky Way every night and I wanted to become an astrophysicist or an astronomer and as I got a little bit older I developed an interest in archaeology and you know you don't know when you're a little kid that you can't do all these things at once so it wasn't until I got to high school I guess and and you sort of realize that there's an expectation that you have to narrow yourself down so I ended up on the archaeology path and was a professional archaeologist for for many years. So I was a heritage consultant uh, working with Aboriginal communities. And in the middle of all of this, I I did a PhD. And after that, I went back to heritage consulting. So never thinking about space in all this time, apart from what you hear on the news. And then um, one day, it, it was, you know, people talk about light bulb moments, but but I had a literal light bulb moment where I had been in the field all day uh, in very hot conditions in central Queensland. And I was sitting on my patio with a lovely cold beer. Archaeologists are very fond of their post-fieldwork beers. And looking up at the sky, just as I had when I was a little kid, and I just had this revelation, like, you know, the top of my head opening up, I thought, I'm looking at stars and planets and moons and satellites and space junk. And junk is basically what archaeologists look at. We look at the stuff people discard and abandon and leave behind. So I thought, oh, my gosh, 
this space junk in Earth orbit is an archaeological record. And then because I was working as a heritage consultant at the time, I thought, well, does it have heritage value? Like, what are the objects up there that are actually significant for people on Earth? What are their stories? And, and so that was it. It was like one moment I was just a regular archaeologist in Australia doing the things archaeologists do, and the next moment I suddenly was on a mission. I love this. In my head, obviously... I'm of the age where anytime someone mentions archaeologist, I picture Indiana Jones. So right now I'm picturing you as Indiana Jones running around Australia, then looking up and saying, I'm going to be space indie. <laughs> I have to say archaeologists have a, have a fraught relationship with Indiana Jones, but let's not go into that now. <laughs> yeah, I thought, I thought that might be the case. <laughs> awesome. So uh, now onto the actual space junk. How much stuff have we actually got up there? And is it a major problem now or is it uh, somewhat manageable? Well, it's it's an interesting difference between the kinds of archaeological records that the average archaeologist studies, which basically aren't a risk to anyone, you know, unless you cut your hand open on a very sharp stone tool in an archaeological deposit. But looking at space junk as archaeology brings up a whole new raft of issues because, in fact, it is a major environmental problem at the moment. What we have up there are approximately 35,000 whole satellites and spacecraft and bits of debris and fragments that are 10 centimetres and above, and millions and millions and millions of fragments that are below that size. And the 10 centimetres is a, a sort of a general limit of detection from the surface of the Earth. By some estimates, that's about 8,000 tonnes worth of material. And... In the last couple of years, we have started to put these mega constellations into Earth orbit. So the amount of stuff that is up there is going to increase dramatically by the end of the decade. There could be up to 100,000 more satellites. So the problem with all of this is that people on Earth have come to rely on, you know, simple things like with your smartphone, you know, you don't know how to get somewhere, you will turn on the navigation thing and you will use it to find your way. A really simple thing like that, but to do that, you're hooking into satellites. Or you might, you know, look up the weather in the morning to find out what clothes to wear or, you know, a million little things which involve your phone uh, hooking into satellite data networks. So at the level of daily life, we're kind of now used to having these things and things like GPS coordinate the distribution of food um, used in agriculture, disaster management, telecommunications, so many things. But in the 60 or more years since the launch of the first satellite, Sputnik 1, the, there has been the creation of, you know, abandoned and fragmented and exploded satellites that create debris all moving at incredibly high speeds, average of seven kilometres a second in low Earth orbit. And when at those speeds, if something collides with something else, they both get damaged. And if the collision is a really bad one, you might have two whole satellites that explode and create thousands and thousands more fragments. And if you have something like a nation wishing to demonstrate its military capability that uses a missile to shoot one of its own satellites out of the sky, then you create many more fragments of debris. So it's getting to the point where something has to be done, something active has to be done to kind of remove some of that stuff from Earth orbit or we might well create uh, regions of, of Earth orbit that we can't use anymore. So those are all of the risks. So you can imagine when I have conversations with people about this and say, oh, sure, we need to get rid of some of it. Hang on one minute. I want to keep some of it because of its heritage value. You can imagine that those can sometimes be interesting conversations. A lot of people assume that Heritage is about preservation, keeping stuff. Mm -hmm. And so, so occasionally I'll have people get, you know, a little bit angry at me. They're saying, you know, you, what is, why are you proposing this? We need to get rid of this. We don't need to keep it. And my argument around this is that not all space junk poses an equal collision risk and that 
we don't need to, uh, I mean, at the, this point in time, we actually don't have the means of actively removing old satellites from low Earth orbit. We can't do it. Um, but when we get to the point where we can, my proposal is that we have something a little bit like environmental management frameworks that we have on Earth, where there'll be like a notification system. You say, okay, um, this satellite looks like it's going to start, its orbit has decayed, it's in the path of operating spacecraft, we need to get rid of it. Let's kick in a whole lot of processes around that because there are also security and uh, issues around potential warfare and conflict in space around this stuff as well. You don't want to accidentally remove uh, someone's working satellite by mistake and just say, oh, we thought we were doing the right thing. It just happened to be your military surveillance <laughs> satellite. Sorry about that. So that's not the kind of thing people want. But, yes, yeah, so they would say, okay, well, we need to get rid of this. Let's check what its heritage value is. And a lot of the time that will probably be really low, but sometimes it might actually be really high. So the case uh, study I always use is Vanguard 1, the oldest human object in Earth orbit. It's been up there since 1958. If we have the capacity to actively manoeuvre in Earth orbit and remove a piece of space junk, then we also have the capacity to move that piece of space junk to a less risky orbit, for example. So that would be preferable to, to saying let's pull it out of orbit or let's destroy it in some other way. So that's that's kind of what I'm advocating. It's basically let's just ask the question before we assume that all space junk is equal and all space junk is equally valueless, let's just ask the question because some of it is actually going to be culturally significant for a whole bunch of people. So that was a, a long explanation, but hopefully that kind of captures the main points of what you were asking. Yeah. So. Is there anybody actually in charge of what goes up and what comes down? And are there really any laws or any, you know, and does anybody enforce them concerning space debris? At the international level, I suppose the answer to that is we have the treaties, like the Outer Space Treaty, um, the Liability Convention, and a number of others that kind of uh, set out the principles uh, in a general fashion. And one of those main principles is that no one can own space and that space should be for peaceful purposes only, which is very ironic given that at least 50% of, of all space craft are, are used for military purposes. So you kind of have that higher level um, operation. You also have the registration convention uh, by which if you launch an object into space, you are required to register it with the UN. And people do do that, but sometimes they don't do it for years and years afterwards, and sometimes they don't do it at all. But the rest of it is all regulated at a national level. So the, the most countries have some kind of uh, legislation that deals with the conditions of launch and getting permits or licences to launch, and some of those licensing conditions are about uh, ensuring that you don't contribute to uh, an increased amount of debris from the mission that you propose. And there's also a number of sets of guidelines. So NASA has some, European Space Agency does, the UN does as well. And for new missions launched, these guidelines propose ways of designing the missions so that you can minimise the amount of new debris that you create. And there's sort of a general rule that you don't leave anything in its sort of original um, mission orbit for more than 25 years, which is a pretty long time, really, mm. if you think about it. So there's there's lots of levels, I guess, uh, where there's opportunities to, um, you know, be a good space citizen and comply with all of these different um, recommendations and guidelines. The scary thing is, I, I heard a figure at a, a space conference I was at a couple of years ago that only 40% of all missions launched do comply with those guidelines. Yeah. So that's not great. No. And the other issue here is enforcing. So if someone chooses not to do that, what are the consequences? Well, pretty much there are no consequences. The consequences are manifested at the level of the, you know, the global population of space junk. So the responsibility is devolved to, you know, an individual operator working within a set of nat national uh, legislation and guidelines. And 
yeah, what happens? Like you launch the satellite and you didn't. Well, actually, now that I say that, perhaps there can be consequences. If you launch your satellite and you did not do anything to make sure it would not become a debris hazard, um, then maybe you are refused your next launch license. Uh, and that seems simple enough, but now I think about it, I don't know of any instances where that has happened because most nations are desperate to grow space business and to get more stuff into space. So I guess there's, you know, a possible avenue forward. And talking of avenues forward, are there people designing new technology to help remove space junk? Is is that a thing that's happening? Well, there is some good news on this front. So there are a number of satellite operators and agencies and universities who have been working on ways to actively remove old debris. And one of the more successful of these, um, which I think was Surrey Satellite Systems, was testing a little harpoon, which you could shoot at a piece of space debris and then, you know, pull it out of the orbit that's, that it's in. The, the kind of end result of a lot of these are altering the orbit of a piece of space junk so that it will re-enter the atmosphere and burn up uh, quickly. That test, they, they've tested it on Earth and they've tested it in space and the test was successful, but it was just on a little tiny little bit of stuff. There's uh, another method, which is to use Earth-based lasers to shoot at the piece of debris, and this is particularly useful for little bits of stuff. So you've got the whole satellites, that's one problem, and then you've got all of these smaller bits of debris. So you shoot a laser at a piece of debris, you ablate the surface a little bit and, you know, equal reactions, opposite reactions, blah, 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 Newton, all to the orbit enough for it to come back into the atmosphere. The problem with that particular one, it could be very effective, but it's like the anti-satellite military tests. You could be pointing the laser at uh, a working satellite and, and, again, it's sort of that oops moment. Was that your surveillance satellite? Sorry. So it's potentially very good technology, but what the part of the equation we're missing there is the sort of international agreement level of stuff, So, which is another big issue with this. And there's many other proposals, um, you know, sort of nets and tethers and all kinds of things. And yes, people are working on little sort of space tugs that can go up and, and pull pieces of stuff out of orbit. Uh, a lot of the new other developments are make creating new satellites that have built-in mechanisms to remove them from orbit. And the Clean Space uh, Project from Switzerland is doing a great job with that. So we have that kind of stuff. But the, the one of the main issues is with our current propulsion systems, like you could send a whole mission up to remove a piece of space junk and that's all it will be able to do because it has to take all its fuel with it and you, it very fuel costly to manoeuvre within and between orbits. So the whole idea we might have a little space tug zipping about collecting stuff up is just not possible. You'd have to take all that fuel with you. And of course, you know, you have to get the, the little space garbage truck out of orbit as well. So I think uh, realistically, more effective active debris removal requires new propulsion systems. And fortunately, we do have people working on new propulsion systems, things, you know, like um, plasma fuel and things like that. So we might have the capacity at some point in the future to zip about and pull things out of orbit. But th this was these were all the plans people were making before Starlink satellites started going up. And the claim made for Starlink is that, you know, it's all fine, they'll re-enter quickly and they're small. Well, they're not actually that small, they're actually quite big. And probably a Starlink satellite re-enters the atmosphere at least once a month, so they are falling out of the sky. But orbits are not like clockwork. Orbit, orbital dynamics is actually quite unpredictable. And I haven't yet seen what I consider to be good long-term modelling of what these mega constellations are, are doing to Earth orbit. So we've got a whole other problem with this stuff as well. So I'm kind of painting a bit of a bleak picture here, aren't I? <laughs> yeah, a little bit. <laughs> Kind of brings us to our next question, actually. Um, 
So there's that age-old debate. Uh, there's some who are very supportive of sending up more and more satellites, such as what you just mentioned, the Starlink constellation. And and obviously there are some who are very against it. Um, as a space archaeologist, what is your take? Uh, <laughs> that is a good question. Well, uh, as a space archaeologist, I'm interested in what the material record tells us of human attitudes to space. And I think the, the mega constellations are indicative of the current era, which is all about commercial use and profit. So we kind of had, you know, we had, we can divide the space age up into a number of different periods, you know, archaeologists love a good age. And, you know, we've kind of got um, the, the Cold War period where everybody's basically competing to demonstrate technological superiority in space. After the end of the Cold War, you could say we entered a period of international cooperation or visible international cooperation, which of course has been going on the whole time, but it just becomes the sort of visible public kind of face of space. So, you know, International Space Station, Apollo Soyuz, a whole range of things. And now uh, we're in, you know, space 4.0 or whatever you want to call it, which is all about uh, commercial use of space. So as an archaeologist, I'm interested in what that material record demonstrates about human attitudes to space. So I can't go into orbit and do an archaeological survey at this point, but let's just say I could. So I would go up there and one of the things I would be doing is analysing the decay of spacecraft surfaces. So I would, I would go up there in my little archaeological survey ship and I would see Vanguard 1, which was a beautiful aluminium sphere, polished aluminium sphere, and it would be very dull and pitted. It's been up there being bombarded by micrometeorites and bits of space junk for years and years and years. And then I would look at the distribution of material from low Earth orbit to geostationary orbit and the graveyard orbit above geostationary, and I'd be able to see the technological changes uh, that happen between low Earth orbit and geostationary orbit. And then I would see that there is uh, a proliferation of identical satellites, very recent because they're very little weathered, in low Earth orbit again. And in my little thought experiment about this, I, I often surmise that I don't have access to any documentary records. And, of course, this is what makes space archaeology so fantastic because I can do all of this stuff and I can talk to the people and I can read the reports and, and all of that stuff as well. Um, but if I, if I didn't have access to any of that, then I'd be like, what's going on here? So they've moved their telecommunications from geostationary orbit to low Earth orbit. What's going on? Say, so, okay, we've got to look at what's on the surface of the ground here. And then you see a movement from massive ground stations to tiny terminals. And you could posit that that's a whole new regime of how people access telecommunications. So that's the kind of stuff I would kind of be interested in looking at. But when I don't have my archaeologist hat on, the thing I think about this is people are just accepting that we need to do this stuff in orbit and we actually don't. Mm. A reason a lot of this stuff in is in orbit is because we have not developed or maintained the terrestrial infrastructure that provides the same services. There's a lot of stuff that doesn't even need to happen in space. So thinking with that lens, these mega constellations promise internet access for remote and hard to get places that, that haven't had that opportunity before. Well, sometimes a reason they haven't had that opportunity is because the terrestrial infrastructure cables, for example, have not been developed. So we could save ourselves a lot of space junk by reinvesting in terrestrial infrastructure. And I will stand by that statement because I actually think it's a really important thing to keep in mind. I think that's a really interesting point I hadn't considered because by doing that, there would be other infrastructure benefits as well to areas that clearly need them, uh, not just in terms of providing internet. Um, that investment could be 
could make life so much better in various parts of the world. That's a good point, Dave. Yeah, that's a really good point because that's also like local employment and training and capability building and all kinds of stuff as well. Yeah. Um, so that it's it's almost short sighted to think of these constellations as providing greatness to these areas when actually there's other things they need as well as that, which could be done without a constellation, as you pointed out. Right, so we've got a Patreon page, and a couple of our patrons have sent in some questions. Um, Todd Oliver has asked, what will cause the first serious incident where a life will be put in jeopardy? A large object or a small one? Oh, that's um, that's really interesting. And we had, with the Russian anti-satellite test, which was earlier in November 2021, we had such a situation where smaller debris objects were threatening people inside the International Space Station. And I think it's going to be, like, I don't want anyone to die in space, but I also think we're incredibly lucky that no one really has so far. I mean, there have been fatalities, um, but they've been on the way back to Earth or before or, you know, within the atmosphere. So, and, and they were, you know, terrible, tragic events but we haven't had anyone die while they're actually on orbit or on the moon or anywhere else. And I think when that happens, that is going to really change how people look at the developing space tourism market, for example. But the question of whether it's going to be, you know, a big object or a small object, statistically it's much more likely to be one of those bits of debris that's, you know, around 10 centimetres in size, big enough to do a heap of damage. And there's a large quantity of them. There's far more of them than there are whole spacecraft. So my feeling would be that it's going to be a smaller bit of debris, a fragmented part of a rocket body or a satellite or something. And we're probably not going to know where it comes from. So this is interesting in terms of the liability convention. The liability convention states that the nation which, which to which the space object or the bit of debris belongs is liable for any damage it causes. And usually that's kind of framed in terms of damage to operating satellites, but that liability remains if it actually, you know, injures or kills someone, whether it's on Earth or whether it's in space. And, of course, lots of people will have seen the film Gravity with that absolutely, like, eye-watering, horrendous, seeing where the piece of space junk goes straight through his head like it's not i'm sorry to bring it up it's it's really confronting to watch isn't it but it's interesting at the moment the international space station you know usually has anywhere between sort of three and seven people on it at any one time we've now got Tiangong one which has you know two or three people periodically the lunar gateway which will be in lunar orbit when it develops will have you know, a small crew, you know, for a month at a time perhaps and they come back. But there's all these private space stations and um, being developed and China and Russia are talking about a space station collaboration. So it's possible we'll have a lot more people in Earth orbit uh, pretty soon. And what's going to happen? You know, we're increasing the amount of space debris that's up there, particularly in low Earth orbit. And what's going to happen when, you know, that chunk of stuff uh, goes through someone's head or causes cabin depressurization or even, you know, disables uh, a space habitat to the point where the inhabitants are threatened simply because, you know, lots of people have seen Apollo 13 and the issues of what happens when the carbon dioxide level um, gets too, too high. So I don't know, there's lots of scenarios here that are, you know, quite scary. But the whole space tourism market, it's currently suborbital. Jeff Bezos and Richard Branson have not been sending people into orbit. They've only been sending them up sort of up and back. But if they want to develop that market, people are going to want to know that they're going to be safe, aren't yeah, they? absolutely. We've talked a little bit about this, but uh, Russia recently performed a surprise ASAT test, which uh, yielded quite a bit of orbital debris. And um, obviously those on the ISS had to shelter for some time. And do we need to be worried about more tests like this? Oh, gosh. 
It would be nice to say we don't need to be worried, but the fact that Russia did this one at all suggests that we probably do. I mean, it's just mystifying because we know what happens. Like, we know what happens when you, you fire an Earth-based missile at something in space. So nobody needs to test the impacts of that anymore. So it really is just for show. It's just to say, hey, look, we can do this. I don't know. I mean, I don't know about, about you, Dave and Emily, but just like waking up in the morning to that news and I, I was so angry, like I was so angry to think that they could do that. And, and it had been even the first week of November, there was a, a fragment of Fengyang 1C, the infamous Chinese anti-satellite test from 2007, the, the International Space Station crew had to, um, you know, respond to a near collision with a piece of that one that, you know, it was over 10 years ago and that debris is still out there. And it, you just sort of think, well, it's cutting your nose off despite your face. If you increase the amount of debris knowingly, then you've only got yourselves to blame. But one of the issues is, so people say, because the anti-satellite tests are obviously military launches and people say, oh, look, it's because the civil space agencies and the military space outfits aren't talking to each other. And, and there seems to be, at least in the case of China, there seems to be an element of that. But the rest of that is, is you know, that's I don't think that's the case at all. So it comes back to this issue that, uh, you know, national security is overriding things like the Outer Space Treaties and how are we going to get nations to stop prioritising their defence over making sure space is usable for everyone? And I, I don't know how to do that. We're based, it's tied up with demilitarising Earth as a planet. How can we demilitarize orbit if we can't do it on Earth? And I don't know. I don't see that happening anytime soon, unfortunately. Yeah, absolutely. I think you've nailed it there. It's it, it, No one can enforce it because you can't even enforce it on Earth, can you? So yeah. especially when it's the, the same old players on Earth misbehaving as what are misbehaving in space. Very true. All right. So I'm going to try and pick up the mood a little bit. <laughs> is there a way of making old dead satellites come back alive again and would there be any use uh, of that in helping to solve any of the problems with junk or at least justify having some of the items up there the answer to that is yes so it's not easy uh to first of all you have to identify an an old spacecraft which still has, for example, you know, enough fuel, which has intact solar power, uh, which we can communicate with, uh, then you would have to, and, but people have done this, so it has been done specifically, then you have to communicate with its owner and say, hey, I would love to use your old satellite to do this with. And then you have to have the right code to communicate with it. But people have successfully um, in fact, it wasn't that the spacecraft were kind of dead and had to be revivified. It's simply that they weren't being used. So you simply communicate with them and turn their systems on again and then use them to gather whatever scientific data you want. So you can see there's huge potential here for, for community or citizen science. And one of the things you could do is, and, and I am like, you know, it is actually an incredibly challenging and difficult thing to do, so I don't, don't want to underestimate that, but it can be done. And suddenly we could use some of these uh, satellites to actually gather more data about what's going on in orbit. Most satellites are looking down at the Earth or they're being used to look out at space. You know, they're like astronomical observatories, things like that. There's, there's far fewer than you would imagine sort of looking at each other. Uh, so we could get some really interesting data about what the Earth orbit environment has become since we've started putting all of this material in there and just general good scientific data as well. So, so something that happens when a spacecraft gets to the end of its mission life, it, that's not actually always the same as it's the end of its physical life. Although the kinds of uh, guidelines for, for, for designing missions to not create more space debris actually 
want those to be aligned so that when you get to the end of the mission life, it's the end of the orbital life and it was removed from orbit. But with the old satellites, they're not necessarily the same thing. It's just that people stopped working on them and those teams were assigned to other projects and nobody's listening or talking to that spacecraft. And sometimes this does involve having to go and look for the old documentation and the old codes and all of that kind of stuff. And you might even be able to, to make a deal. You could say, right, end of mission life for this spacecraft is this year. We're no longer going to be using it for that. But if it's still functioning, you know, sign a contract with a, a university or a student group or something and say, right, we'll just pass it over to you. Here's all the stuff. Give them all the material so they don't have to reconstruct it from nothing. Um, go and do some great science with this. So we kind of need a database of spacecraft that have that capacity. And, and again, it's not easy. This is something as an archaeologist I often have to do. I try to find out what happened to something. And just recently I was trying to find out what happened to the Japanese UNA uh, satellite around the moon, and there's no information. There's literally no information because they, they just, once the mission is over, they just stop thinking about it or keeping records about it or anything. So this kind of thing means that that we people need to watch. This is this is what archaeologists call taphonomy. Uh, people need to watch what happens after the spacecraft is abandoned. Um, and there might be ways. Oh, well, there's so many possibilities. I won't go on. But I just think th th <laughs> this a bit of creative thinking and innovation here would be fantastic. Yeah, yeah. I was right. It is a more positive story, isn't it? It's a more positive <laughs> framework of looking at these things. Um, so we, we've we've got another Patreon question, which I, I think you might enjoy. Uh, it's from John Wisenhunt, who says, should future space explorers be trained, equipped, or otherwise prepared to conduct basic field archaeology? Ah, that is a great question. So this is a little bit similar to what we have to do on Earth in the sense. So... Um, on big construction projects, for example, the archaeologists can't be everywhere. So you do have to um, provide some level of training for plant operators and foremen, for people and things like that, um, so that if they come across something of archaeological or heritage significance, basically they know enough to stop work. So, so a great example in Australia in particular, I guess, is, is when you come across uh, human remains, the the ancestors of contemporary Aboriginal communities. And if people are not trained to, to recognise uh, human remains, um, then they can destroy these incredibly culturally significant sites. There's, there's a double edge to it. It also enables people to say they're not going to report it because it will stop work. So it doesn't always work. But if people don't know about this stuff, then, you know, you can't blame them for not paying any attention to it. So I think it would be fantastic, actually, to provide crews on space missions with some, some sort of basic understanding of what these issues are about. This is kind of what heritage is about, too. It's about creating communities and making people feel connected to the past. And I think when people do feel connected to the past, they have a, a greater sense of responsibility and care for these places and environments. When I talk to um, particularly engineers on Earth and ask them about particular missions they've been involved in designing, uh, I often find that they're kind of, initially they're sort of flummoxed by my questions, like they don't get why I'm asking them. But often I find at a certain point in the conversation, they'll realise I'm asking because I genuinely value what they do. And then they will open up and start talking about their feelings and emotions about a spacecraft, for, for example. Like it gives them permission to feel something about their personal connections to technology. It's a shame that that kind of isn't valued more. And I think for, for crews working in space, both for the practical aspect of, of them saying, oh, my God, we're about to, you know, we're, we're going to collide with Vanguard 1. What should we do? We don't want to destroy <laughs> Vanguard 1. You know, that's really useful. But it's also about sort of 
moving away from the idea that technology is impersonal and shouldn't be engaged with human emotions and, and giving people permission to celebrate and value their own connections to space. So on two fronts, I think that would be amazing. I, I guess in particular, this question leads into the, the, the thoughts of what happens when we're back on the moon and those archaeological sites well they are archaeological sites right the the, the moon landing sites absolutely yeah you know it it's to me it's so important that those areas are preserved in some way uh, and you don't want people just walking up to things and breaking things off or ruining those sites so i guess in particular, John's question may be in reference to that, maybe not, but but that's what I, where my mind went with it. It's like, oh, that would be so important. Uh, where, where the Apollo astronauts had to know about geology, the next set need to know about geology and a bit of archaeology in case they come across survey, a surveyor craft or whatever it is uh, while they're on the moon. Well, yes, no, that is a very good point. And I'm actually involved at the moment with uh, the Global Expert Group for Sustainable Lunar activity, um, which is uh, run by the Moon Village Association and will be reporting to the United Nations Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space next year. And I'm working on the heritage aspects of that. And something I'm going to be proposing is, is in fact, something we do on Earth as well, that like anybody working on the surface will have like an induction process. And as part of that induction process, you know, it will be... Um, explained you know what is what are the heritage sites what is their significance what do we have to do to ensure that nobody inadvertently you know destroys them in the process of this but the other key thing here which which you both alluded to there's actually a lot of locations of stuff on the moon and we we don't know we don't know where something ended up and the little una japanese satellite is one of those so we it was launched in 2007 there is no information available on whether it's still in orbit. It's unlikely to still be in lunar orbit because lunar orbits are very unstable in general, but we don't know where it ended up on the surface. We don't know. And there's a number of uh, places like that, loca unknown locations. And Japan actually has five crash landing locations on the surface of the moon that are its heritage. We tend, we think about the Apollo sites because they're the, the sort of, big dollar numbers and they are amazing don't get me wrong but there's a lot of other nations that have heritage on the moon as well i hadn't thought of that to my yeah. to my detriment i hadn't thought of that you are so correct yeah and, and lunokide yes and, well in fact the well richard garriott owns one of those Lunokide. <laughs> yeah <lives>. that's right <laughs> that's gonna be really interesting um but so yeah so what if somebody sets up their safety operating zone and starts carrying out extraction activities within it and bam there's una there's this gorgeous little una satellite and this little impact crater what do they do so japan technically owns that satellite under the terms of the outer space treaty so they would have to be notified but the site itself which would consist of the spacecraft and the impact crater and its ejector uh doesn't have any level of protection uh, under current international um, treaties because the launching state only owns the object mm. and but the site consists of the immediate environment and impacts of the object as well. And asserting some kind of jurisdiction over that area could be interpreted as a territorial claim. So we have a little, it's not an insurmountable problem at all. It just needs to be dealt with. Okay. I think uh, we're at the final question now, and it's kind of a softball question, but it's a fun one. What's your favorite vintage space object? Oh my gosh, that's a that is such a hard question. I have, I, I will talk about my current favorites. The spacecraft I'm obsessed with at the moment. There's two of them actually. They're identical twins. They're called Dodecapole One and Dodecapole Two. And they were launched in the 1960s as radar experiments. And they're, again, that early spacecraft design of a polished aluminium sphere. And they were launched with 12 seven-metre antennas wrapped around their body. 
so when they got into orbit, the antennas were released, and now they look, they've got like a little, a little aluminium body with these enormous, 12 enormous antennas stretching out. So they kind of look like deranged sea urchins or sea spiders. <laughs> you know how sea spiders have a little tiny body and these enormous legs. So they look like some kind of sea creature floating around in space. And there's only two of them. There were only ever two satellites in the whole history of space ever designed like that. So they're now technically space junk. And I think they're quite fascinating and beautiful um, dodecapole one. They're also called porcupine one and porcupine two. That's what that kind of look like. And I think I think they're beautiful. All right. Well, I think that's uh, Dave. Do you have anything else? No, that's wonderful. That's absolutely wonderful. Great place to end. Uh, Dr. Gorman, thank you so much for joining us. This has been an absolutely fascinating and really insightful look at, at this uh, area outside of where we live and what we're doing to it. So uh, thank, thank you for sharing your thoughts and your expertise with us. It's really greatly appreciated. Well, thank you, Emily and Dave, so much for having me on your podcast. And thank you for indulging me in my long raves about my opinions on everything in space. Thank you. Well, that was that was just fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. That was incredible. Uh, I, I, I hate admitting this, but I really don't think as much about the space outside of our planet as much as I should, you know, and um, uh, pe- people like uh, Dr. Alice Gorman. And, and I, I also follow uh, Dr. Jonathan McDowell. On, yeah, he's um, great for this stuff as well. Yeah, I follow him as well on Twitter. I follow people like that to sort of get it, you know, a leg up on that kind of stuff, because it's like we all say, you know, oh, space is big, you know, space is incredibly large, but it's like the low earth orbit is still finite absolutely <laughs> and, and 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 it's the speeds isn't it the speeds that things are traveling at that's the that's the craziness yeah you know yeah you don't want to get struck at you know seventeen thousand five hundred miles an hour that's very fast that it, uh it's gonna do a lot of damage exactly yeah. so uh i i have two things to say number one i love the fact that because because it was morning uh where dr alice uh, is w- w- was um, we heard some birds sing to us all through that. I thoroughly enjoyed that. I hopefully that they'll get picked up as you're listening to this as well. I thought I heard that because I was like, "That's not coming from me. <laughs> yeah. That's not. It's dark here, so yeah, it's not coming from here." Um, and Emily, I'd like to congratulate you on not bringing up uh, what happened to to Skylab over Australia. Thank you um, as well, because I, I thought that was an obvious obvious thing for you to want to bring up with uh, with Dr. Alice Gorman and. And I could, can't. I was surprised. I was pleasantly surprised that you didn't. Well, she is Australian, and exactly. I, I did not want to bring that up with uh, somebody from Australia. So yeah, <laughs> I think we still owe them money. <laughs> okay, fair enough. I don't want to get a call from the Australian consulate and be like, "Hey, by the way." <laughs> You guys remember that bill we gave you all those years ago? Like, that's got interest on it now. Like, <laughs> seriously, though, that was a really cool interview. I really enjoyed that. Yeah, me too. And I think uh, I need to get Dr. Gorman's book. I don't have it. Same. And it's one Same. I definitely want to read. So I think it's going to go, go on my Christmas list this year. Yeah, I think um, the book was actually, I want to say the book was uh, nominated last year for the Space Hipsters Book Prize. Yeah, very good. Wow. Nominations are open for this year's book prize as well. So if anyone has a book they want to recommend uh, for the book prize, I'll put a link in the show notes. But talking of that, there will also be links to Dr. Gorman's social media pages and a link to the book if you want to get yourself a copy. Uh, And if you're a member of our Patreon, you can listen to the full unedited interview uh, over on our Patreon page right now, patreon.com forward slash space and things. Apollo Houston, I got two messages for you. Moscow is go for docking. Houston is go for docking. It's up to you guys. Have fun. All right, sounds good. And after all that talk about putting things in space, there have been five launches since we last recorded. The DART mission that we spoke about <laughs> last week got away well from Vandenberg Space Force Space in California. In case you missed what we said last week, this mission is very cool. It's going to try and change the trajectory of a small asteroid by smashing into it. Now, this isn't an asteroid which is currently heading for Earth. It's just a test to see if it can be done. In a mission... 
which is a rare case of humans being proactive rather than reactive. Uh, there was also two launches from China, one from Russia and one from Kazakhstan. And full details of these launches and their payloads can be found within the show notes, which will be found on our website, spaceandthingspodcast.com, or just follow the link in the description of this podcast. The launch from Kazakhstan was a Soyuz 2.1B rocket, which took another new module up to the International Space Station and another upgrade for the station. The Pritchal module has docked the Nayuka module that was added earlier this year, and thankfully this one docked without any of the problems that Nayuka had. Thank God. Yeah. (laughs) This new module adds 494 cubic feet, or 14 cubic meters, of capacity to the station and six new docking ports. It can also be used to refuel the Nayuka module's fuel tanks. With the station operating with bigger crews than ever, this extra space will surely be appreciated by those on board. Also this week, photos were published of the space station, which were taken by the Crew 2 astronauts when they departed a few weeks back, and they're really beautiful photos. If you haven't seen them, be sure to check them out. Yeah, absolutely. Some great shots there. And talking of the ISS and linking back to the chat we had with Dr. Gorman earlier, NASA had to postpone a spacewalk this week due to risks posed by debris. Although NASA has not announced what the source of this debris was. I can't think of what it might be. Can you? No idea. Absolutely no idea. Absolutely no idea. When I read that, I had my hands in my... I was like, what? What is this? Yeah. And some other headlines. The Happier headlines. The Perseverance rover has collected its fourth rock sample on Mars. The Hubble Space Telescope is nearly back to normal after a glitch in its internal clock occurred in October with only a... One of its science uh, scientific instruments left to turn on again. And next week, Japanese billionaire Yusaku uh, Masawa is headed to the International Space Station as the latest tourist to visit the station. And you can find links to the articles for all of those stories in the show notes. <laughs> Emily, I see you've been busy writing again. Three new blogs this week, by my count. Yeah, let me see. I think, yeah, there is. Oh, my God. Uh, yeah, I did the one for Celestius. Uh, today is Giving Tuesday. That We're recording the show on Giving Tuesday. So I did one about uh, Celestius's uh, charitable contributions. They have a foundation called the uh, Celestius Foundation. I did one about um, for Strixis, about, uh, about leadership, of all things. And... <laughs> And uh, it's actually a decent, I, I actually like it a lot. I think it's a good article. It's about uh, the art of being vulnerable at work. Ooh, nice. And uh, I wrote one about the history of the NASA worm logo and how not everybody liked it when it came out. Yeah, I love that article. That was a good article. Thank I enjoyed you. that one a lot. Yeah, I have an anonymous source in there. Nice. So yeah, it's a lot of fun. I enjoyed writing it. And as always, uh, links will be in the show notes for them as well. And so the Space Junk episode is over. Uh, many of you have been asking for this one, and we hope that you enjoyed hearing from Dr. Alice Gorman. Uh, a big thank you to our Patreons as well for your continued support. Don't forget, you can join the party at patreon.com slash space and things. Yes. And yes. <laughs> thanks to everyone who continues to share the podcast. It really does mean a lot. But don't forget, in space, no one can hear you stream. Space and Things has been brought to you by And Things Productions. <laughs>